All right. Man, do I got some fire today. We're going to get into Kamala Harris and Kinko's and what that all means. Delano Squires, he's going to join us, our fearless contributor from Washington, D.C., and our very own, the Blazers' very own Steve Dace will join us. We'll talk about Tucker Carlson and whether or not the Washington Post is right for trying to frame Tucker as racist. All that and more next! Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock. Happy Monday to you. Uncle Jimmy's right here with me. Uncle Jimmy, I got a fire today. Let's get right to it. Slavery to an ideology disconnected from the word of God produces ignorance and bigotry. Vice President Kamala Harris is not stupid. Her parents earned graduate degrees from Cal Berkeley Harris graduated from Howard University. She earned a law degree from a solid school in San Francisco. Her, <laughs> her nervous cackle and occasional illogical word salads cause her political foes to question her intelligence. I don't. The political ideology she's forced to defend provokes ignorance. Her boss, President Joe Biden, and her party, the Democratic Party, have framed any attempt at verifying the identity of voters as a new form of Jim Crow laws intent on disenfranchising black, brown, poor, city, and rural voters. On Friday, BET host Soledad O'Brien asked Harris if she would politically compromise on calls for enhanced voter ID requirements. The vice president's response sparked derision across social media. Listen to this. Is agreeing to voter ID one of those compromises that you'd support? I don't think that we should underestimate what that could mean. Because in some people's mind, that means, well, you're going to have to um, Xerox or, or, or photocopy your ID to send it in to prove you are who you are. Well, there are a whole lot of people, especially people who live in rural communities, who don't, there's no... Kinkos, there's no Office Max near them. People have to understand that when we're talking about voter ID laws, be clear about who you have in mind and what would be required of them to prove who they are. Of course, people have to prove who they are, but not in a way that makes it them it almost impossible for them to prove who they are. It's an absolutely ridiculous response. I'm surprised she didn't start cackling. But what was Kamala supposed to say, given the position of the Democratic Party? Had she followed her party script and argued that black people in major cities struggle to acquire government IDs, we would be calling it Kamala's Kinko's comment. KKK, you like that alliteration? She gave the best possible answer, (laughs) given the current Democratic Party playbook, which is nothing more than a derivative of the KKK's philosophy. The current ideology of the left is that America houses a vast number of people, black, white, and brown, incapable of taking care of basic responsibilities 
because of systemic oppression. All standards of responsibility must be lowered so that these helpless people can survive in a system that exploits them. That pretty much summarizes the platform of the left. Empathy justifies the ideology. Pity fuels the reaction. Unfortunately, the absence of both faith in a higher power and belief in the equality of man transforms empathy and pity into a lethal mixture of ignorance, bigotry, and elitism. Religious conservatives do not lack empathy or pity. Their faith, combined with their belief in the equality of mankind, causes them to pursue a teach a man to fish approach to inequality. I'm a religious conservative, not a political one. I've never voted. Throughout my life, empathy and pity have driven me to reach back and provide opportunities for family members, friends, and young people from more difficult circumstances than my own. I've never lowered standards for anyone I've helped. If they're unwilling to meet my standards, I move on and help those willing to step up. If they choose to seek excuses or wallow in victim mentality, I move on and help those willing to step up. I could rattle off countless stories and examples. I'll mention one. Years ago, a Ball State football player, Dante Love, broke his neck during a football game against Indiana University. I was at the game. I'm a Ball State football alumnus. I went to the hospital that night to check on Dante. He was a high-level NFL prospect. His football career ended that night tragically. He came from a very difficult background. People were depending on him making it to the NFL. I promised him that night, when he thought he might never walk again, that I would help him transition to a new life without football. Dante regained use of his lower extremities. He graduated from Ball State. Over the next couple of years, he had a difficult time adjusting to civilian life as a non-pampered potential pro athlete. Felt sorry for himself. Thought the world owed him something. He was irresponsible. Frustrated, <laughs> I called my good friend Isaiah Thomas, the NBA legend, for advice. Isaiah came from a background as difficult as Dante's. Isaiah advised me to remove my support of Dante. I called Dante and had him drive to my apartment. I had him remove his few belongings from the car I had loaned him I parked the car in my extra parking spot and I left Dante to fend for himself. I didn't care how or if he made it back to his apartment. I didn't speak to Dante for many months. The next time I talked to him, he was a changed man. He's been a changed man ever since. He calls the day I left him standing in the streets a blessing from God. Over the past decade, Dante Love has become one of the best human beings I know. He's a terrific father to his nine-year-old son, Dante Jr. He's a self-taught biblical scholar who schools me. He's built a successful career at Aerotech. I consider Dante my adopted son. He learned to fish. I could write a book on all the obstacles Dante has overcome. My brief telling of his story does not remotely do his life justice. It's insulting 
When I hear elite politicians argue that poor people or rural people can't do this or that. You mean David Slade, Slade Goliath, Dante Slade, innumerable hardships? But I'm supposed to believe poor black and white people can't secure government IDs? Are you kidding me? The thinking is elitist bigotry brought on by ideological slavery and an unethical pursuit of political power. Are political conservatives unethical in their pursuit of power? No question about it. That's why I don't vote. Is their pursuit of power built on the racist premise that black people are incapable of taking care of themselves or the elitist premise that poor whites are too damn stupid to know what's best for them? I just don't see it. The sales pitch of Kamala Harris's political party is founded in anti-black racism and white supremacy. Many of the high profile black advocates of the Democratic Party's approach believe their success can be directly attributed to the lowering of standards. This is especially true of black liberals with Ivy League degrees. On average, they enter Harvard, Yale, etc., with lower test scores, grade point averages, and family wealth than their white peers. They're made to feel inferior and dependent on white empathy and pity. Many of them carry those feelings of inferiority and dependence the rest of their lives. Those who reject those feelings and or fail to promote black dependence on white help are quickly branded as disloyal sellouts and Uncle Toms. I've never felt inferior to anyone a day in my life. My faith doesn't allow it. My dad, my father wouldn't allow it. Say that, say that. I'm appreciative of people who have helped me throughout my career, but I put in the work. In 1991, I almost cost myself my first full-time job. The Charlotte Observer required me to do a two-week tryout before offering me a job in its Rock Hill, South Carolina bureau. At the completion of the audition, the editor smugly told me I was an, un, uh, an affirmative action hire. I told her, don't give me the job if I'm unqualified. I just showed you the last two weeks I can do the job, I said. Over the next 14 months, I set fire to the rain inside that bureau. At a salary of $23,000 a year, I wrote more front page attention grabbing stories in a handful of months than people the newspaper was paying three times as much to write A1 stories. The biggest criticism in my yearly evaluation was that I worked too many hours. When I left the Charlotte Observer for a much better, higher paying job, the editor of the entire paper, Rich Oppel, a man I'd never met, was furious. He hunted me down in the Charlotte newsroom and told me, you'll come back through the same door you're leaving. He didn't offer me a promotion or a raise. He suggested I was uppity and ungrateful. I don't want to disparage all white liberals. I know some awesome ones. However, the bigotry I face in the media industry has come exclusively from white liberals angered by my refusal to submit to their control and their superiority. I was booted from ESPN's The Sports Reporters 
15, 16 years ago because I refused to adopt Mike Lupica's narrative on steroid abuse among professional athletes. All of my alleged controversial departures, let me just add this, my departure from Rupert Murdoch's Fox Sports, they were non-controversial, I'm not talking about Fox Sports. But all my alleged controversial departures had a common denominator, a white liberal who thought my existence and success were a kick in the nuts. Anti-black racism and white supremacy, oh, they exist. We're just blaming the wrong people and the wrong political ideology for their existence. Jimmy. What's up, bro? I just set fire to the rain. Yeah, It's my favorite fire starter. Yeah, you did that. You did that. I know you ain't a Dale, but uh, yeah, you set fire to the rain. <laughs> Seriously. First of all, let me tell you this. Since you, while you was on your little um, rant, yeah. I was taking notes, and uh, I find it quite interesting. And I think um, one of the things I would just like to say up front is um, James Brown used to have a song that said, Say It Loud. I'm black and I'm proud. I think if that song was out today, what would it be? Say it loud. Uh, I'm black and I'm oppressed. <laughs> yes, that would probably uh, be the name. Say it loud. I'm black and um, I'll never get ahead. Is, is that what we're teaching now? Seems to be. You know, I mean, and there, there are people that will tell you, they'll say, black people will tell you. Hey, so what? You know, it, it, it happened. She got there. See, that's how we end up with that OJ theory type. It's okay. Well, many years is it? It's okay. No, it ain't okay. You know, the thing I say about, I'll just say Kamala Harris is this. Well, it don't matter. Okay, it don't matter right now. It don't matter in politics. It don't matter in sports. Okay, you you, you now have umpires, referees, it's now happening with the reporters, what's happening now. But what happens when it starts happening in medicine? What happens when they start saying, no, we're not going to give you the best doctor to work on your child. We're going to give you the best woman. And due to the fact that it's Tuesday, we're going to give you the best black woman. Not the best doctor to work on your child, just the black woman. Just the best woman. How about you step on a plane? I was going there. Come on now. Come on. We're not going to give you our best pilot. No. We're going to give you our best LGBT pilot. And truthfully, that pilot has no problems taking that plane off on takeoff. Ain't got no problems. Now, on the landing, eh, not so much. But that's our number one LGBTYNGBQ. How, how, how do you feel with that? Not good. I get you can't run a country this way, not a successful one. You can't they're, run a business this way. They're not running China this way on these standards. And, and I, I'm just. The, but this ideology that they're promoting. That somehow we because, Jim, I used to be poor. I used to, again, I talk about it all the time. Me and my father in a 400 square foot 
one bedroom, one bathroom apartment in 1984. My father hustling as a bartender, hustling in the streets. We living on about $300, $250 a week. You called it hustling. We called it surviving. Go ahead. There you go. Same, Same thing. And again, I've been poor. I'm not. We weren't stupid. We weren't incapable of getting ahead. My father is one of the smartest people I've ever met. One of the boldest people I ever met. He got his business taken from him, back taxes, the IRS. He got another business. He climbed up out of that hole. We had driver's licenses and government IDs the entire time. I got family with real problems Mm -hmm. that ain't never had a problem getting a driver's license and a government ID. I don't understand why we as black people keep allowing our alleged friends to frame us as irresponsible idiots and not see the racism in that framing. To me, it's it's like this. As you go through the road of life, it's not your fault if you fall in a hole full of shit. But it is your fault if you just stay there and you just waller in it. You have to get up out of it, wash yourself off, and move along. You might fall in another hole, but you got to get up again. But you can't just stay in the hole. Oh, look at me. Oh, poor me. Get up, learn where the holes are, and keep moving so you can keep going on. But if you're old, you old poor in the... No, 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 no. You got to keep moving. That is if you're planning on progressing and moving on in this thing in life, though. You have to understand, I, I, I don't think the society, I don't think that your Joe Bidens, I don't think that your Kamala, I don't think that that's really their goal. That Their goal really ain't to promote wokeness, blackness. Their goal is to promote uh, you need us. You, where would you be without us? Let's keep it real. Now, if that was, uh, what's that one lady's name that wear that thing around her neck, uh, the, the, the Democratic lady that don't nobody like? If that was her giving this message, nobody would listen to it. But see, they put Kamala out there to give that message. Oh, we listen to it. Put our own people out there to feed the boy, because we'll listen to it coming from our own. Jim, you and I, over the years, you've seen me evolve. I've seen you evolve. Okay. You, you and I, again, we've talked a little bit about this on the show. We certainly talked about it on Megan Kelly's podcast last week. But I, I, I've, the reason why this is so personal to me is just because, again, I've been poor and climbed out of poorness with a philosophy taught to me by my father, exemplified by my mother's actions. Again, my, my mother is, is Can a hardcore left. Excuse me. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Serious business. Yeah. Where would you be in your life right now without your father? Now, you're saying, you, you just said what your father gave you. Now, take away your father just ha- a- a- and say where you'd be with these problems you've had in life without your father. 
I would probably be somewhere feeling sorry for myself and somewhere blaming people uh, for my lack of success. Or I, I, I would, pro- my father put a mindset in me that of no excuses and that you're capable of anything. And, and it wasn't really just my father. I actually, because I'm going to say, I got a stepsister okay. who I'm very close to and have, you know, been close to since I was five or six years old. She's older than me. She set a hell of an example of what we could do in America as black people. Mm-hmm. And it opened my eyes up. And so I, I look at my father and my stepsister as like they opened my eyes to what we could do. I look at my brother and my mother as providing me the platform and the fa- for me to grow, for me to, to, they were the launching pad. My father and my stepsister were the fuel. They gassed me up. And I just see a lot of people that have no gas. They, a lot of people don't have a solid foundation to jump off of, but they, they have no gas. No one, and again, the whole messaging of a lot of people from LeBron James on down is like, oh man, even if you had some gas, you couldn't go nowhere anyway. The highways are rigged against you. And just, just and I'm not trying to put you out there. Go ahead. But at the foundation of our friendship, when, I, when we first connected, that was we connected because our sense of humors. You were right, just right. damn funny on my show. Good guy. But we kind of disagreed about, hey man, ain't no excuses in this world. Ain't no any grown man. You you got kids and all that, Jim. You got to quit tripping off of all this. What you can't do and who's not holding you back and blah blah blah. And I've seen you run with that mentality and you're an amazing story. And it's, it's why again, no different than Dante or if I talked about my cousin, Josh, who certainly had some ups and downs, but I planted some seeds in him that have really taken root. And, and, and there's, (laughs) you know, sometimes I bump my head and sometimes you, you, Sometimes you bust your head. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. But there are some amazing success stories, and I consider you one of them. Well, thank you. But you have to, to me, um, when you talk about me and a success story, I wouldn't be here, and I tell you all the time, if it wasn't but for the grace of God. Now, for me, it wasn't because of my father. For me, it was because of my grandmother. It was because of my grandmother and the faith and, and what she instilled in me. And for me, it wasn't just my grandmother. It was her brother, which was my uncle Russell, the pastor, Russell W. Davis, you know. Uh, and my, my uncle Russell was just one of the old, he was an old-fashioned, what you would call a fire and brimstone preacher. He, he, was one, he, he, he said to me one day, he said, Jimmy, 
You could take all of the real pastors in Kansas City and put them all in a station wagon. You know, he, he, he was just one of those guys that uh, my Uncle Russell just kept it real. Uh, uh, he, he, he was non-apologetic. Uh, the world was what it is. And first of all, if you ain't got a foundation of Jesus, you ain't going to make it. That's why I began my monologue talking about an ideology. If you're a slave to an ideology that's disconnected from the word of God, it's going to promote ignorance and bigotry. It's not going to lead to success. And that's when I look at the left, there's a complete disconnect from God. Oh, are some people that swear up and down by, uh, by the Democratic Party, do they go to church? Do they believe in God? Yes, they do. But they're not aware, it just blows over their head that the political ideology that they're supporting has no connection to God. It has empathy and pity, but it does not have faith and teach a man to fish and a belief that all men are created equal. That comes from God, an unalienable right as by their creators, as Thomas Jefferson talked about. Again, what I see the left's message is, Oh, we got, we're going to serve you up plenty of empathy and pity, but we don't have any faith in you, really. We don't believe you're actually equal. We believe you're borderline retarded and stupid and incapable of taking care of yourself. So we have some solutions for you, and we're going to lower standards to a point that uh, any child could jump over them. And, 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 and then we're going to send you checks and stimulus packages and welfare and every other program in the world because you're incapable without our help. And it creates a dependence on them and it keeps, keeps people loyal to voting for them. But does it really teach you how to stand on your own two feet? And, and I would love for us as black people, we have been slaves, the most ardent supporters of leftist propaganda and ideology. What have we gotten for? What are the results? And we can't keep saying, well, if it wasn't for racism from the right wing, this all would have worked. You can't keep arguing that because it's just not true. And particularly for those of us that are believers, God's on your side, but you keep failing. You must not be applying God's principles properly. If you're not inching forward and moving ahead, we have to ask ourselves these questions. And we have to ask ourselves, who really thinks little of us? Jason, how are you going to know God's principles? If you ain't never opened up God's playbook, how you going to know? I mean, how do you know? You said in the beginning, you know, t- talking about slavery. How, you can't talk about slavery if you don't know God. See, it's real simple when we start getting down to what, what the problem is, you know. And, and you, you asked the question. You said, uh, talked about teaching a man to fish. Uh, let me ask you something. Why would you teach a man to fish if you own all the drive throughs at McDonald's? <laughs> <laughs> It, 
it's a, it's a humorous question, but it's actually an appropriate question. I'm just saying, if you're making money off of it, why would you? You know, Alcoholics Anonymous has a 12-step program. And in this 12-step program, it tells you that if you really, truly seek to beat alcoholism or drug addiction, once you start getting your head together, it starts telling you, once you understand what you're doing and you truly get your mind right, they tell you, or in my case, let me just speak in our statements, they told me, they said, Jim, when you get your head together, let me tell you what's going to happen. When you get back to your wife and you start telling your wife, I got that. No, I'll start paying those bills. No, here, let me handle that. Don't be surprised if your wife leaves you. Have you ever met my wife? No. That's why. Why, did they, why would they say don't be You step up and become a more responsible person and she rejects you? Why? Because birds of a feather flock together. See, she was like, she was feeding. See, we don't realize as men, a lot of times we attract, the women that we attract, they attract us because they see our vulnerability. They see they can run game on us. We think we're running game on them. We don't realize they're running game on us all along. The moment that you step up to be a man, now she can't be the man. She can't run game on you no more. It's time for me to go. I ain't got no more business here. Heck of a point. I'm just We're going to roll out to D.C. and bring our man Delano Squires into the conversation. Before we do that, you guys need to hop on YouTube.com slash Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Hit that subscribe button. Hit that notifications button. Delano Squires is going to join this conversation. He's an instant hit. My mother keeps calling. She would like to yeah, kick me I, to the curb. I like Delano. She like told me she kicked me to the curb for Delano to be her son. All that and more. Welcome back to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock. All right, Uncle Jimmy, it's time to roll out to Washington, D.C., and bring in our main man, Delano Squires, a contributor fearless, one of the brightest minds uh, in the public intellectual space. Delano, welcome back to the show. I just I know. got done ranting and raving about Kamala Harris's Kinko's comments and about who really is, what ideology is really promoting anti-black bigotry. But let's first start with do you think Kamala Harris and the left actually believe what they're saying about voter ID laws? Hmm. I don't think they believe it, but certainly doesn't stop them from saying it. Um, I think they use one of the most traumatic periods in, in American history, particularly for, for black Americans, as a rhetorical vice to whip black people in 2021 into fear so that we think that America in 2021 is the same as America in 1921. Um, as I said, I don't, I don't think they actually believe the things that they're saying. If they did, then they would probably protest Delaware because Delaware also requires ID to vote in person. So um, as I said, it, it's, at this point is more of a, of a rhetorical tactic um, to whip us into fear because this is the party that says um, that all problems that black people face are because of systemic racism and white supremacy. So they say, vote for us because we will um, eradicate racism and fix all the systems. Um, so, so really what it ends up being is that oftentimes their 
the effect of their voter um, registration efforts is basically to get us to secure their jobs for another two to four years. Delano, are you and I outside the norm of black people in terms of we can see the BS in this message? Do you think the average black person sees the BS in analogizing voter ID to Jim Crow 2.0? I think the I think the average black person can see it if you know if we were having a private conversation in our homes at a cookout in a barbershop and we got beyond sort of the the raw emotion of it. So after someone you know, says this is Jim Crow, Jim Crow 2.0, the Republicans are trying to put us back in chains. After we got into an actual conversation and we sort of took some of the emotion out of it, I think most people would realize it's ridiculous to think that needing an ID today in 2021 is the same as um, having to count, you know, a box of jelly beans in, in 1934. Um, I think we know it's ridiculous because we, people use ideas for all types of things to um, get medication, to board planes, to, to get into parties. Um, I just think it's one of those things where um, the, the, the emotion of it is so visceral when, when you hear it, and particularly because of the party that it's directed at, right? So a lot of black people tend to think the Republican Party is racist anyway, so anyone that says something that confirms that is something that um, appeals to us on a visceral level. But I think once you, you draw the emotion out of the conversation, and have a more rational conversation, I think most people would, would agree that that's a pretty preposterous claim. You know, part of the strategy, or as part of, I think, the thought process many of us in the black community have come to is that if we do something that agitates conservative white people, mm. that's a plus for us. That we wake up, how can we agitate white people? And that somehow is going to move us ahead. And I'm wondering, where does that logic or strategy actually work? When you're on your job, does agitating your coworkers or bosses, does that like, oh, man, I, I'm going to get that promotion because I've agitated everybody at work. Does agitating your wife or husband, <laughs> does that make things better at home? If I can just... Every move I make, if I can just agitate this person or that person, my life is going to get better. I, I, am I right in thinking that we think political agitation is the key to black people moving ahead? I, I think so. And I think part of it stems from it's a really sad irony. Some of the, the people who claim to be most unapologetically black don't know how to define themselves outside of white people, right? So I'm, you know, I, I've told you guys, I, my, my, my wife, my wife and I, you know, we homeschool, so our kids are young, so they're really into, you know, planets and and um, astronomy. And one day it hit me. Um, I was thinking that for a lot of us, we relate to white people the way, you know, the Earth relates to the sun, right? So we don't know how to sustain or even conceive of life outside of us revolving around them. Now, what we should be doing is relating to them um, and all people, the way planets relate to one another. We so we're in, we're in orbit, right? We're moving together. 
some planets are larger than others, some move faster than others. But uh, for some reason, some people don't, they don't know how to define themselves outside of um, quote unquote whiteness. So that's, that's why that's all they talk about is whiteness and white supremacy. Um, they have no idea what, what it means to be black in America in 2021 without having to attach blackness or tether blackness to whiteness. Delano, one day they're going to fire me and just give you this show if you keep saying <laughs> things like you just said. I, I, want, I want you to repeat and just expound a little bit on your son and the earth and just like we can't grow and develop without white people shining a light on us. They're our source of life. Mm. Man, you just said a mouthful. I, I can't wait to put this out over social media. <laughs> if you can just elaborate on sure. that just a little bit more. I want sure. so the back of the room can hear you. Sure, sure. So 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 really what it is, it's it's uh, as I said, for, for many black folk and particularly the ones who claim to be most unapologetically black. Right. For them white people and whiteness, because that's, that's one of the things they talk about all the time. It's, it's their son, their S-U-N. Um, in many respects, they, when they tie whiteness to everything from um, lynchings to nuclear marriage, to nuclear family, excuse me, uh, what, what they're saying is, this is both our source of light and heat, and they don't know how to define their lives outside of, of, of whiteness and, and white people. Um, now, what they should do is to see all other peoples as, as I said, just other planets in orbit. And, and, and again, this is where my own worldview comes in, where we are revolving around the sun, the S-O-N. Um, and when you do that, you, you, tend, you see that you don't need another planet to affirm you or give you life because they have no ability to give life. So I, I hope for, for some of those people that they would that they would realize um, that there is more to, to being black in, in 2021 than to be against whiteness or white people. The way that I say what Delano just said very cleverly, and, and I hope people at home, uh, particularly black people, uh, writing this down, think about it. You don't have to agree with it instantly, but just, just think about it. My assertion is, that for many black people, white people are their God. Mm. And as, as a Christian and as a believer in God, there's no man or woman that I'm ever going to look to as a source of, of my happiness, of my end all be all. I can't make it without them. E even, and again, I'm not married, I haven't been married. But even if I were married, I would love and honor and celebrate my wife. But I would damn sure be able and know, oh, I'm going to be good without you. It will hurt to lose you. Mm -hmm. Yes, we are one. But if you fall, I'm going to soldier on, particularly if I got some kids and some, you know, that we have produced. I'm going to soldier on with or without you. And, and I just... For those of us who reject white people, particularly white liberals, as our God, we are quickly framed as, oh, 
you Uncle Tom and sell out, and all the other, and I'm just sorry to use this term, I don't want to be, but all the House Negroes that are in uh, the, the liberal house, they, oh my God, Jason's got no respect for Massa. He, he's speaking bad about Massa. Oh my God, he, he's a sellout. He's a dangerous Negro. We got to do something about him. And, and I, I, I'm never going to change from that. And, and, right. and literally people will be, oh, you don't like black people. Like, I don't like black people. I'm black. My mommy and daddy's black. You stopped us because we black. <laughs> no, no, but I'm saying that it's like me. I, I'm, I'm like, black. And I'm like, I, come on, man. Well, hold on, man. I was like, look at my actions. Show me where I'm mistreating black folks. The only thing I've been trying to do is like, hey, take this white man off this pedestal. Take all this idolatry of celebrities and, and mm. people like LeBron James. It's right there in the Bible. It's dangerous. All these little special people that you can, oh, can't make it without LeBron, and he's so impactful, and, and 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 this white liberal and that this Hollywood person, blah blah blah. I'm like, put God and Jesus on that pedestal. Man and everybody else is no different, no better than you. And you and God work it out. You and your wife work it out. I, it it. Hmm. Let me move on to this question, Delano. <laughs> Why or why, and, and maybe I've already asked this question or you've already answered the question, but some of the things Joe Biden has said, you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Black people can't, uh, don't have lawyers and accountants and black people, you know, it's hard for them to get IDs and blah, blah. How long are we as black people going to allow them to portray us as idiots and irresponsible and lazy and incapable before we before we realize like hold on man these people think nothing of us do we think nothing of ourselves delano you asked the question of how long um i think that time is running out honestly i think with with shows like this with a number of of um, black Americans of all ages who are doing work, um, actual work in their communities, um, who are preaching a message of, of self-sufficiency, um, who are preaching a message of, of radical grace. Um, as I said, just different individuals, different organizations who are saying, no, black, black folk have agency, right? We're rational beings. Who make our own decisions according to our own values and beliefs and and we may not make the same decisions as everyone else and everyone makes different decisions based on again on the things that they believe and value and prioritize but take us at our word that we know what's best for ourselves and our and our communities um and i think the days of that type of pandering um condescension paternalism uh, are coming to an end honestly i think more and more people see um, the game that's being played. They see how every um, incident that can be ginned up um, on racial lines is, is, is grabbed onto and spun up and made and, and used to make black folk think that, you know, the world is ending and everyone is out to get us. And I think more and more people realize there's a, there's a big disconnect between what corporate media um, and our culture's elites say are the problems facing black folk and the ones that we see in our communities every day. So 
Um, I think they continue to go to that well, but it's, it's running dry. And I think in the next couple of years, you're going to see some major, major pushback and people starting to um, ab- abandon the left and the Democratic Party. I don't know, you know, if they're going to vote for Republicans. And honestly, that's not my primary concern. My primary concern is for black people to to live publicly the values that they espouse, espouse privately um, and to do the things that will strengthen our community and strengthen our families first and foremost, um, to get back to our, our, uh, our roots and our, and our faith um, and to just manage our own affairs without having to uh, go to someone else hat in hand, asking them to do for us the things that we say we can't do for ourselves. I go back and forth on this a little bit about what's really driving all this. Is it an elitist mentality or is it a racist mentality? And sometimes I, I look and go, well, what the elites, the elites are actually just using race as a tool to divide people of faith, working class people, people who should be natural allies. I say this and people's heads are gonna explode, my mother's head's gonna explode when I say this, but I actually believe Trump supporters are actually the natural allies of the black people I knew and grew up with whose parents worked in factories, working class black people have far more in common with Trump supporters and their issues are intertwined far more than the Ivy Leaguers and the global elites and the LeBron James and the multimillionaire black people that sit on TV and scream about racism. I actually think the elites, black and white, are using race to promote and their real agenda is about elitism. It has nothing to do with racial justice, social justice, anything. It's just a tool to keep natural allies divided and seeing each other as enemies when they're actually allies. Yeah, I, I think if I if I was to sum up what you what you just said, I would I would um, I'd quote from or paraphrase W. E. B. Du Bois and say. Uh, well, I'm not I'm not paraphrasing him. He didn't say this, but I'll, I'll draw from him, which is uh, the talented 10th is failing us completely. Um, the, the black elite class today in 2021, I'm not talking about 50 years ago. I'm not talking about the civil rights movement. I'm talking about today. Their interests in many respects are completely out of alignment with the interests of um, the black working and middle class. So so I I was thinking today about um, the whole issue around. Um, Hannah Nicole Jones, who's a, a journalist with the New York Times, and there was a big, you know, controversy around her being refused tenure at the University of North Carolina. Long story short, she ended up going to Howard University along with Ta-Nehisi Coates um, to to uh, teach, you know, race and journalism at in in their school. I mean, at that university, and and that's all that's all good. I, I don't have any problem with them going to Howard, but I was thinking about how much attention. Um, her tenure battle got in corporate media and even, again, among, you know, the sort of black Twitter, so to speak. 
and then I, and then I compared that to some of the things that she said on on Twitter recently about particularly about crime and crime in our big cities and how you know it's being used uh, to uh, people are framing the issue of crime in a way um, to I guess to scare people and one of her tweets she she said something to the effect of yeah it's uh, increases in violence are bad and then the, the rest of the tweet was about how you know the problem isn't as bad as it really is, and and to me, um, that just <laughs> epitomizes the, the the issue that I'm talking about. And I actually responded to her and I said, um, I quoted three stats. One was on the number of times that the NYPD, New York Police Department, discharged their weapons in 2019. It was about 50. The second was the percentage of um, uh, black and Hispanic New Yorkers who are victims of uh, shootings. It's about 98%. And the third was the percentage of black and Hispanic New Yorkers who are homicide victims. It's about 95%. But for some reason, when Nicole Hannah-Jones and Ta-Nehisi Coates and all the other um, members of corporate media, and particularly the black ones, Joy Reid, all those people, when they get on TV, they will tell you that the number one threat to black life in, in working class and poor black and brown communities is the police. In a city of 8 million people, the police discharge their weapons about 50 times. They, but those people will never tell you about those other disparities which exist in terms of race and crime. So, I mean, our, our elites across the board of all races are completely failing us. And um, I, th- I think it's time that more people uh, shed some light on that. You mentioned W.E.B. Du Bois and the Talented Tenth and Du Bois's theory. I can remember as a kid, I can remember reading his books and hearing about W.E.B. and the Talented Tenth. And, and I remember as a young person buying into it mm-hmm. and, and aspiring to be part of the Talented Tenth. And then I remember transitioning as a young adult, and and particularly in my 30s and 40s, and going, well, hold on. So the talented 10 are these light-skinned African-Americans that they led into the Ivy League schools. And and some of these guys are my friends, and I don't want it to sound like I'm disparaging them. I, I really don't, but I'm just being factual. They're letting in these schools through affirmative action. And I'm like, I wasn't one of them. I was not part of the talented 10th at no point. I was a dude in the hood in Indianapolis with my father that had grades good enough to barely sneak in to Ball State University because I was a talented football player. And my whole rise, and when I look at the way I've been treated in the industry, if I had gone to Northwestern or the University of Missouri or Columbia's Journalism School, if I was part of the talented 10th that went to an Ivy League school, how I would be treated and the doors that would be open to me and the love and adulation I would get in this industry. But because I went to Ball State, None of that came my way. And because I was not part of the talented and because my values are working class and Christian conservative, 
None of that came my way, despite whatever accomplishments I've had. And, and, and there's a damn good case. I'm the best sports writer of the last 30 years. A damn good case. Mm. They're never going to say it. They're never going to give it to me because my credentials, what I was born into. And so I have, over the years, completely rejected the town of the 10th and, and screw them and screw anybody that celebrates that because one, it's just not in the Bible. Jesus doesn't talk, you know, there's 10% of y'all that's going to save the world and save the rest of them. Jesus said he's the way. He and God are the way. There is no town of the 10th. All of you will bow to me and my way of doing things or you'll live to regret it. And so, any, I, I can't, I'm not, I, I'm just, the whole Wait celebration. On. On. Keep going, don't stop. W.E.D. Du Bois just, it bothers the heck out of me. So, I mean, I, I will say this. I think there's something to be said for leadership, right? So whether you call it the talented 10th or the leadership class, um, whoever is in charge of a particular institution, whether it's a company, um, a country, or a family, um, that person is going to wield tremendous influence. So to the extent that there are certain people who wield influence in our culture, right, they, they shape culture, they, um, they hold elected office, um, they're members of, of the media, ath- uh, professional athletes with huge platforms. Those people actually matter. Now, one would, would certainly make the argument that a generation ago, um, they, they used their platforms for um, social good, right, to expand the rights of citizenship to, to, to black Americans and, you know, to get various pieces of legislation passed. And, and we all you know, owe them a, a debt of gratitude for that. But now what they're doing is that they're using, in my, in my opinion, they're using their platforms um, for chaos and disorder. And they, they are only interested in issues that they can um, utilize for their, for their own gain. And that's why they, we're, we're at a point now where um, professional athletes or members of the media who live in Philadelphia will step over the bodies of, of young children who've been killed to, to, as, as they head to the studio to tweet about someone in, um, I don't know, Kenosha, Wisconsin, who, who was shot by the police. Now they, have, they don't know this person, they have no relationship or connection to this person. This person is not a member of their community. They just heard a story, it went viral, and now they think this is the most important thing that they need to talk about. So in many respects, we've, we've lost the notion that charity begins in the home, or, or more generally speaking, that we should look to our immediate surroundings first um, in terms of, uh, you know, extending a hand of, of help or, or benevolence. And, and, I th- and I lay a lot of that on our, our leadership class. Um, and that's why, as I said, they, they have hijacked, the, the, the black elites in many respects have hijacked the plight of the black poor to extract benefits from white liberals from them for themselves in the black middle class. Hey Amen. We'll end on this note, uh, Delano. I was pretty hard in my column today on Ivy League black people. I, I, uh, I think his name's Wilfred Riley. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's part. He's a I think a professor at Kentucky State. Got a little bit of a following on Twitter. I was looking at some stats he has been pushing out about the SAT and GPA gap 
between Asian and black people at Ivy League schools and between white people and black people at Ivy League schools. And I think between Asians and blacks, black people are scoring like 300 points lower than Asians and maybe 200 points lower than uh, white people. And, and it, it helped crystallize for me like, wow, what's that experience like as a black person going to a school where on average and in general, your test scores are lower, your family wealth is lower, your GPA is lower than your white and Asian peers, and they have, they create the appearance that, man, we've done you a favor letting you in this school. And I think it creates an inferiority complex in a lot of the Ivy League black people that they carry for the rest of their lives. I went to Ball State University. I got in where I fit in, never spent one moment feeling inferior to anybody, never feeling like, man, they did me a favor letting me in here. I, and so it's created a confidence and a belief in myself that I'm not sure that a lot of the Ivy League blacks are getting because they're on a campus that I think makes them feel inferior. Hmm. You buy my theory at all. I, I, I definitely think there's something to that theory. I, I will say this, though. Um, there are many Ivy League students who, who black Ivy League students who've earned their way there um, onto campuses. And many of them carry themselves with, you know, with, with dignity and, and grace and, and honor. Um, and, you know, they graduate, they work hard because at the end of the day, you and I both know it doesn't matter how you start. It matters how you finish. And sometimes people get opportunities that on paper they don't seem they haven't seemed to have earned. But when they get the opportunity, they make the most of it and they just keep working their way up. So um, I know a number of, you know, Ivy League graduates, some, some in my own family. Um, and the people that I know have used those opportunities um, to further their careers and, and more often than not to, to give back to their communities, to, to, to run schools, to start businesses. Um, and I respect that. I, I do think part, part of our problem is just with our you know, high system of higher education in general. Um, college is the only place you can go where, where you learn that a man can get pregnant, right? That's, that's sort of what some of our elite institutions are producing. And I, and I don't even care what college it is, that's, that's, that's typically you know, what you're learning. So I've come to the point, and, and full disclosure, there was a period of time where I wanted to be a college professor. Um, and, and I had applied to a couple of PhD programs. I got rejected by all three. It was the best rejection that I've ever gotten in my life. Um, because I continued to do the work that I was doing and start a family. And um, I, I realized that, you know, at, at this point, sometimes when I hear an idea, um, some of them are so ridiculous that I say to myself, oh, this had to start on a college campus. Um, I've seen college professors, black college professors, um, who say that they would rather their children interact with drugs than interact with the police. That, that's one guy. Um, who's a professor of psychology and pharmacology <laughs> at Columbia. Um, another woman who is a self-identified radical feminist um, said that she's glad that the nuclear family has gone the way of the floppy disk. So basically that the nuclear family is becoming extinct. Um, and as I said, a third one that I, that I know of 
is one who on a different show was asked, can men get pregnant? And his response was, was it depends. So these are not people that I, that I envy. Um, I think if you go to a college, whether Ivy League or state school or some other private institution, and you're majoring in a STEM field, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, or some other hard science, more power to you. But if you, if, if a parent nowadays it has a choice of sending their, their child to a college to get a degree in, you know, left-handed underwater basket weaving, or to encourage them to go into a trade school or vocational school, or learn how to build a house or lay sheetrock or weld, I as a parent would choose the latter every day of the week. Delano, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. We'll see you later in the week. Thanks, guys. That was Delano Squires. Thank you, D. Star of this show. He's going to replace me or you, Jimmy, at some point. I hope it's you. I was going to say. <laughs> Actually, let me tell y'all, Blaze, we can, we can definitely clear a whole lot of cap, cap, salary cap. If <laughs> All right, don't go anywhere. Go to YouTube.com slash Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Hit that subscribe button. Hit those notifications. Don't go anywhere. We're going to talk about Tucker Carlson. I'm going to start another fire, and then I'm going to bring in Steve Dace from the Steve Dace Show to help explore the Tucker Carlson issue. The Washington Post is preparing a hit piece on Tucker. They called me and asked for comment. I'll get into that, all that and more. Nerds! Welcome back to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I got a second fire I'm going to start. The Washington Post is preparing a hit piece on Fox News superstar Tucker Carlson. Post investigative reporter Michael Crandish left me a voice message on Tuesday requesting an interview. Carlson, Crandish relayed, was the subject of the request. This will serve as my response to Crandish's appeal. Over the past year, Carlson's nightly monologues have become must-see TV for me, and I don't watch much television. I gave up on cable news shows and major network scripted TV shows years ago. The last cable news show I watched regularly was The Ed Show on MSNBC. Yeah, Ed Show on MSNBC. I related to the host, Ed Schultz, a former small college football player who had a brief tryout with the Oakland Raiders. Schultz had a working class point of view. MSNBC, of course, canceled the show in 2015. Shortly after that, I bailed on all cable news. I avoided all the partisan madness throughout most of the Trump presidency. Other than sporting events, Netflix and Amazon Prime movies, for about four years, I never turned on my television. COVID changed my habits. I was living in Los Angeles along the Wilshire Corridor. I could no longer hang out at Uncle Jimmy's favorite spot, Wally's in Beverly Hills, or frequent the iPick movie theater two blocks from my apartment. Plus, I found our reaction to COVID fascinating and frightening. I began recreational use of cable news. When Reverend George Floyd Luther III was assassinated, I started mainlining CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC. America was a 20-car pileup, and I couldn't divert my eyes from the wreckage. By the time our elites finished fortifying the election, I was, by my standards, a cable news junkie. In my attempt to make sense of COVID, 
St. George Floyd and President Joe Biden's landslide victory, I watched a couple of hours of debate cable news per day. I started rehab in December. I quit CNN and MSNBC cold turkey. They're just too nuts. They're just too godless and too secular. Their religion is race and racism. I'm now back to watching sports, movies made before 2015, reruns of The Wire, Sopranos, and The Shield, and Tucker Carlson's monologues. I suspect the Washington Post reporter wants to query me about why I used to make regular appearances on Carlson's show and why I haven't, I haven't appeared in recent months. I'm sure Michael Cranish wants me to defend Carlson against allegations that he's racist. I haven't appeared on Carlson's show in recent months because I've been focused on launching my own show, this one here, Fearless with Jason Whitlock for Blaze Media, and because Fox News hasn't made me a financial offer that makes it worth my time. Mm-hmm. When I was a partner at the startup Outkick.com, it was difficult to generate traction and relevance without appearing on cable news. <laughs> Blaze Media, we got an infrastructure, we got a team, we got success, we got a foundation that's able to lift this show and lift me and Uncle Jimmy without any assistance. A business. I may return to appearing on Carlson's show at some point in the future. His show is terrific and important. He's the sole TV personality speaking unvarnished truth to governmental abuse of power. He's the lone TV host practicing journalism on a daily basis. It's incredible and inspiring to watch. Is Tucker Carlson racist? Dumb question. Every single human being on the planet is inflicted with biases, including Michael Cranish and everyone else at the Washington Post, the New York Times, etc. I've met Carlson several times. I don't know Tucker Carlson. What I see and hear of him on television doesn't remotely strike me as anti-black. He strikes me as a person who loves the U.S. Constitution, the United States of America, Jesus Christ, and American freedom. He appears to have a problem with people who don't love or appreciate this country. I have the exact same problem. And unlike Michael Cranish and Jeff Bezos, the owner of the Washington Post, all of my family and the majority of my friends are black. Also, unlike Bezos and other liberal elites, when I've been placed in a position to influencing hiring decisions, (laughs) black people have benefited the most. My family, friends, and coworkers are mostly black. So let's don't start with the bullshit that any black person who defends Tucker Carlson is a sellout or has a problem with black people. Miss me with that BS. Carlson doggedly pursues the truth from a pro-America, pro-Christian worldview. I love it. We need more of it. If being pro-Jesus and pro-America makes you anti-black, then I would respectfully ask my black brethren to reevaluate our political point of view. Or I would ask the white liberal gatekeepers of black culture to reassess their definition of blackness. That's what's transpiring here. Under the guise of combating racism, black people are being asked to turn their backs on Jesus and their country got to stop. Black people must recognize that their white political overseers are using allegations of racism to disconnect us from Jesus, our country, and the truth. 
way, black people. We've been programmed to view the world through a racial lens rather than a Christian lens. We foolishly think our racial biases are perfectly acceptable and white peoples are unforgivable. I don't know Carlson in a real way. Perhaps in his personal life, he is as non-PC as I am. Trust me, when I'm not on camera, I say a lot of things liberal elites would find justifiably offensive. So does my mom. So did my dad. So do many of my family members and friends. We're all flawed. We should all be grateful that Jesus Christ sacrificed for our sins. But rather than debate Carlson's worldview, corporate media would rather frame him as a bigot, just a ploy to distract from corporate media's unchecked anti-black bigotry. Racial Maddow thinks far less of black people than Tucker Carlson does. See, you know what, Jim? A lot of people don't think Rachel Maddow. I'm talking about Rachel Maddow. But Rachel Maddow is actually my nickname for somebody else. Mm. Steve Dace, he's going to join us here in a second to help us talk about Tucker Carlson. Steve wrote a terrific column about Tucker on the blaze. Let's roll out to Iowa and let's join, or let's be joined, by the star of the Steve Dace Show, Steve Dace, who is, uh, I think he's Dr. Anthony Fauci's number one enemy. He's on uh, Dr. Fauci's hit list. Uh, but today we're not going to talk about Dr. Fauci. We're going to talk about Tucker Cross. And Steve wrote a column this weekend about Tucker. Of course, I wrote a column about Tucker, and you just heard my monologue. I want to start here, Steve. The Washington Post reached out to me about an interview about Tucker Carlson. Do you blame me for not trusting the Washington Post and declining to do the interview? Jason, not at all. Uh, for many years um, in, in this industry, I would get disappointed with our colleagues that would not take advantage of the platform uh, within legacy, corporate, mainstream, Democrat, media, whatever pejorative you prefer, uh, because those were open invites. And yes, they were biased, but they weren't malfeasant. Meaning, you know, I, it wasn't long ago, I probably did 30, 40, 50 different panels on MSNBC over a period of several years with lots of different shows, Tamron Hall, several other primetime shows. And yeah, I was always outnumbered, but I always had an opportunity to express my viewpoint, which is all I've ever asked for as a Christian, just let me give a chance to let the lion out of its cage. It'll defend itself just fine. Um, five years ago, the New York Times sent a profile reporter, Jackie Combs, to my house to, to stay with me for a week and follow me around and do a profile of me as kind of the, uh, the unwritten uh, influence or unknown enforcer in GOP presidential circles. And yeah, it was written from their bias, but they were still more than fair. They treated my mom well. I think enough of the piece that it's framed in my man cave at home. But I don't believe the, the last few years any of those things are possible anymore. I think we're now at uh, casting pearl to swine territory, uh, that it's just, it, it's a useless, uh, there, there's just no attempt at even bias now. It's just, it's not even malfeasance. It's just malevolence. It's just all narrative. That's all that it is. It's not news at all. So I think you were wise to not follow up with them. I, they still send me um, requests all the time. I just don't even respond anymore. Let's move on to Tucker Carlson a bit. And so you and I both admire what Tucker's doing. What makes him so dangerous to the left? 
it's it's like he specifically targets the areas that um, the algorithms say you're not supposed to. Too much of our industry, whether we <laughs> want to call it conservative media, although, I mean, if Bruce Jenner is one, then I guess no one is now. Um, so let's call it alternative media, pro-America media, maybe. Um, th- there's There's two camps in this group. Uh, Jason, which you're going to find is kind of a, a newcomer working in this arena. There's those who view themselves as driven by monetization. And then there are those who view themselves as driven by um, by uh, outcomes, policy outcomes that they want to see, cultural outcomes they want to see, and, and then figure out how to best monetize themselves within the latter. But the problem with, with too many of our brethren here is they're driven by the former. And there's certain topics, whether it's the vaccine efficacy or safety, whether it's what happened in the election and then the events of January 6th. The minute you go into those events, you get uh, questioned and marked and scarlet lettered by big tech and your traffic and your channel and your page is just crushed. Just last week, one of our, uh, our, one of our mucky mucks here, uh, Tyler uh, showed me, I won't name the name, uh, but he showed me how social media has absolutely crushed my traffic since January the 6th. And then someone else that operates in this sphere with a lot of the same viewpoints I do works for another outlet that doesn't ever talk about vaccines or January 6th and their social media traffic is just completely taken off. And so there's one group here that's driven by algorithms, another group that's driven here by, hey, we want a pro-America agenda to be successful. What Tyler, what, what Tucker is doing is the, is the latter. And then he is showing that we don't have to make this kind of Faustian bargain between ratings and revenue and, and significance and monetization. He is now Fox News's most bankable star. He's at least the most bankable star they've had since Bill O'Reilly was at his zenith in the late 90s, early 2000s. In other words, by he's going zero Fs given here. Guns up. He just co- shows up to work on the set every day. Guns up, man. I don't care. Come at me, bro. And just lets it and lets the freak flag fly uh, with the stars and bars and doesn't care what, who it offends, who it bothers, who tries to cancel him. And you can see the audience is responding in a way uh, that has made him right now the biggest star in alternative media, which blows up everybody's paradigm. So I think think there's not just people on the left that have an interest in maybe him not being so successful, but maybe there's a group of people on the right who are pretty quiet about it, who in other eras would have been the contributors on Fox and the Romney, McCain, Bush eras. They'd have been their contributors. They'd have been the guys making money or getting the big appearances who are now the quote unquote deep state or uh, their regulars on CNN that nobody watches anymore. Instead, they'd kind of like to do away with them, too. You set me up for my next question. You referenced Bill O'Reilly at his zenith. And when I think of cable news and the all-powerful, really relevant host, I think of Bill O'Reilly, I think of Glenn Beck, and I think of Keith Olbermann. And I'm wondering, is Tucker more powerful and relevant than any of those three when they were at their zenith, or is he a cut below? 
I think he's more relevant with all due respect to all three. I once got mentioned by Keith Oberman as a worst person in the world uh, when I was a local host in Des Moines. That's really one of the proudest <laughs> moments of my adult life. Um, Glenn, of course, I, I get the honor of being the show after him here on Blaze TV, which is a little bit like being on Thursday nights on NBC after Seinfeld or Cheers. It's hard not to draw an audience. You can't suck that bad. Uh, and, and then, of course, Bill O'Reilly. Um, I mean, he was really the first guy from a multimedia perspective, consistent bestsellers, reinvented really what we know about cable news in this era. But what I think, where, where I think Tucker is more impactful is twofold, but it's really symbiotic, Jason. It's the, it's the fact that the audience we're, we're catering and serving to now is much more driven by they want an outcome. They want to win a culture war and not just get a, we you know, own the libs talking point. And so I think the audience is much more open to be mobilized, uh, not just monetized than it was in these past eras. And I think this is where his timing has been very fortuitous. He has stepped into... Um, he stepped into a paradigm that several of us, I would put myself in this group, are attempting to create um, on, on very large platforms. This is one of the largest in all of conservative media, uh, but there's only one Fox News. That's the largest platform in the history of this entire medium. Uh, and so he is doing that uh, on a level that, you know, guys like me are told, you can't get to that ultimate destination on Fox News, like when you were in sports. You can't get to that ultimate destination, that anchor chair for the six o'clock or 11 o'clock sports center, um, blah, 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 blah. If you do things, blah, blah, blah blah, blah, blah. Uh, he has destroyed all of those conventional wisdoms. Uh, and so I'm, I'm damned happy for his success. I love it when people surpass me and get far more successful than me by not compromising or sacrificing anything, because it gives me hope that maybe, um, I could follow in those footsteps. All right. So what's Tucker's boldest stance in 2021? Is it his defense of the so-called insurrectionist, his attack on Anthony Fauci, attack on military wokeness, taking on NSA spying? What's been the most impressive, boldest stance he's taken? Well, the easy answer to all of those is yes. But I would I would single out what's going on right now. And that's why I wrote about it for The Blaze with NSA spying, because because by going there. There, there is simply no way, and, and you know how uh, the, the corporate influence of a major media outlet works far more than I do. We are given an inordinate amount of freedom here at Blaze Media. Um, but at a, what's happened at Fox, you know, with, after Roger Ailes passed away, and I was not always the biggest Roger Ailes fan. He would often use his platform uh, to single out primary candidates he liked. Uh, he, he himself determined that John McCain and Mitt Romney were the most <coughs> electable, which in my parlance means milquetoastiest and suckiest uh, candidates. And so he essentially turned his channel into a super PAC in-kind contribution for those campaigns. I worked on the Cruz campaign in 2016. He did the same thing to us. The whole channel turned against us uh, in order to promote uh, Donald Trump. So I was often on the wrong end of him uh, when it came to intra-party politics, but I respected him as a competitor, that he understood that politics is how we do 
civil war in America. It's 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 why we we do it. Our founders gave us this so that we wouldn't have tanks in the streets every week with a new general in charge. That we take our, take it out on each other. We fight it out at the ballot box so we don't fight it out in our neighborhoods. And I I respected him as a competitor. Since he's passed away and moved on, the new management there much more bean countery. And I think that's why when you look at when you look at Tucker's and and and, and if I could have changed one thing in my column, I would have signified this was primarily the the prime time lineup. There's some great people. Our colleague Mark Levin. You look at Don, Dan Bongino. But notice those people are all on the weekends. I was talking about the prime time lineup where most of the people are watching. I mean, one of these things is not like the other. Maybe about half the time Laura Ingram goes there. But I mean, Tucker's show operates at a totally different DEFCON level than Sean Hannity, who when he gets bored will still talk about Hillary's damned emails. Okay. So I mean, this this is he's fighting a real culture war there now. And by preemptively outing the, the, the deep state or swamp or establishment or whatever, NSA, whatever you want to call it, by shining light on those cockroaches, you are not going to be able to avoid bringing Fox News' management now into your sandbox, where you're not just an intellectual curiosity, but now this is a fully immersive confrontation. And if you look at the rest of Fox's programming on primetime and during the day on weekdays, you have to ask yourself, do the people in charge of that channel right now, they won't even put Trump's weekend and rallies on the air. They're, they, they said to Newsmax last week, hey, here's three million free viewers for you to put the Trump Florida rally on because we don't want anything to do with it, okay? I mean, this, is, this doesn't seem like a network that has the stomach to really um, strike body blows here. Maybe more of a glass Joe, if you know your Mike Tyson's punch out uh, references, uh, that there's more of a glass jaw there, uh, more than uh, uh, you know striking body blows for the culture. And so I will be very fascinated to see if they stand by him through this, because I suspect if he were to be wrong, he'd already been canned. If he over-exaggerates or anything at all, they will abandon him faster than you can say Mike Lindell is our very next guest on the program. So uh, this to me now, because it brings Fox into the maelstrom, into the into the eye of the storm, and it's not just Tucker's show, I think this is now maybe the bravest tact he's taken. And so having said all that you just said, do you think management, Suzanne Scott, the upper management, Lachlan Murdoch, do you think they would prefer if they had their druthers and in their private moments, they'd like to rid themselves of Tucker Carlson if they could? Oh, if we, brother, if we took the Wonder Woman lasso of truth and we put it around every one of those names you just said and asked, if you think you could get 80% of the capacity out of somebody who will just do team GOP talking points and, and turn this into the political version of soccer, where we all just kind of run around and nobody scores any points. And if there's any confrontation or conflict, you get a dainty little yellow card and that Australian rules football like referee comes up, you know, with his mangina persona uh, and, and goes all beta on you for daring to have testosterone, uh, then uh, they would love that. They would take that eight days a week as the Beatles once saying, my friend, they don't want to do it this way at all. There's a reason why Bill O'Reilly was writing Culture Warrior books 20 years ago. And by the time he left Fox News, he was talking about how you could buy howitzers at gun shows. Not true. That's a Democrat talking point about how the Old Testament is metaphor not to be taken literally. I mean, he wouldn't. No, 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 no. They, they, they do. They would much rather be doing this. They like a lot of milk, not with their toast, brother, on it, on it. They don't want to be doing it this way. <laughs> at all make a prediction in two or three years 
where will Tucker Carlson be? I think a lot of that's going to be determined by the political uh, in the political atmosphere we have. Meaning, if Trump runs again, uh, which I think is likely, then I think he will remain where he is at. Because while he's not necessarily as nearly as in on the Trump brand as Sean Hannity is, he's much more aggressive in pursuing that agenda. And there's a lot of crossover there. If Trump stays away uh, and Iran DeSantis steps into the fray, people tell me that Tucker is very fond of him. And then I could see him stay as well. If there's a full-fledged break on the right, though, and you're seeing some evidence of that. Uh, you're seeing Trump's personal attorney, Jenna Ellis, going after the head of the Republican National Committee now. Uh, Trump himself is going after cocaine Mitch, Ditch McConnell, who is basically a caricature of every Republican all rep everybody hates, including most Republicans. OK, if that were to continue and now it really is, um, you know, a civil war intra family squabble on that level. And uh, then I think you might be looking at a media realignment to go along with that as well. And, and I could see Fox just decide that uh, they're going to full-fledged be, with very limited exception, uh, they're going to be the, the, the Mitt Romney, uh, Jeb Bush should have been president wing of conservative media, that they'll have so much carriage that you have nowhere else to go. They'll maintain enough of their uh, place in the marketplace that they'll still monetize the hell out of this, but then they won't have to deal with any of the uh, the peccadillos and the dangers that go with doing the content that everybody really wants. I think for people that are watching you and me right now, brother, I think what they don't understand is that the, the biggest challenge people like you and I have in this business is that the content we most want to do and that the audience most wants gets us the most penalized for doing it, right? And so uh, I could foresee a scenario where th this entire media culture changes as an offshoot of a political realignment that occurs along those same lines. Steve, we'll get you out of here with one final question. I don't want you to be humble. I want you to be <laughs> honest. Mm -hmm. The Faucian bargain sits on your desk right in front of us. I believe it's the backbone of Tucker's criticism of Anthony Fauci. I believe your work has laid the foundation for the exposure of Anthony Fauci. And again, no slight at Tucker, mm -hmm. but I believe your work and that book is the actual foundation. Not trying to take a slide at Tucker, but that's the way I see it. How do you see it? Uh, that's a tremendous compliment. I'd be honored if it played muse to him at all. I mean, look at the book itself. There's more footnotes than pages. What does that mean? It means we used a lot of other people's research and and data gathering in order to come up with what we uh, what we put in this book, the work that we did. Uh, you know, we used a, a lot of people, groups that were part of the re overall resistance, independent journalists like Jordan Schachtel, the people at Rational Ground. That these are people that maybe a lot of folks don't know, but Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter, that really helped to lay a a lot of the groundwork that we took advantage of in order to do the analysis we did on our show as well. I mean, if, if Tucker picked up the baton from there and took it to an even bigger audience than we could reach, I mean, I, I would be honored if, with that. Uh, he's the only weekday show on that's ever, ever had me on Fox News, Jason, ever. And I would imagine I'm probably the highest profile conservative media figure that has been on no other Fox News daytime show in the history of that channel 
given the size of audience I have right now, which is a clear indication I'm some form of blacklisted. They won't even take my money to advertise Fauci and Bargain on Fox News. They won't even take our money to do that. We found that out recently. And so the fact that he had me on to promote it clearly, I think, uh, superseded some form of corporate blacklist there. So I'm very thankful for that. And I mean, I'd be tickled if I found out that our work helped inspired what he did, because ultimately, here's why I got into this business, man. I love making money. Okay. You know, my mantra is fear God, tell the truth and then make money. Okay. I mean, I'm not, this ain't a charity. I'm not doing this for free, <laughs> but, but when, when, but that's not what drives me, Jason, when this is done, I want demons in hell to wipe the sweat off their brow because for the last few decades, they wished my daddy wore a condom that night, and he didn't. And now here I was to torment them on platforms like this <laughs> all these years, and now their lives are at least a little bit easier now that I've been called home. That, to me, is the ultimate win. Steve, I do want you to understand this. A lot of times, guys like you and I that have so much charisma, good looks. <laughs> a lot of the networks are afraid to put us on. It's a distraction for the female viewers. They can't actually hear what we're saying. So we've all, we've all got our crosses to bear, brother. I'm hearing you. I got you. I hear you. Yeah. The great Steve Dace, his show 11 to 1, Monday through Friday, Central Time. Check it out. Great Christian, great public intellectual, fearless as well. Steve Dace, thank you so much. You got it, man. And, and, right, and let me just say YouTube. now that you're here, I love having you with us. Appreciate you. Thank you for doing this. Go to YouTube.com slash Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Hit that subscribe button. Hit those notifications. All right, when we come back, Uncle Jimmy's got a Bible story. And we're doing approval, man. Well. On Kamala Harris. All that and more. Next. Welcome back to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I'm so glad we had this time together. <clears throat> Almost to the end of the show, Uncle Jimmy told me this morning he worked all weekend on a Bible story. Nice little story. Nice you little have story. a Bible story you would like to share? Uncle Jimmy's Bible stories. Our listeners love these and actually have learned some things. I've learned some things from these Bible stories. Uncle Jimmy, what you got? If you learn something from those stories, you're going to love this story right here. Oh, mm. because this story right here, I'm going to talk about Joseph. 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 Yeah. Now, for Old those Joe. of you who don't know. Yeah, go ahead. Joseph was the earthly father of Jesus. Okay. And I think that we as men, if we just sit back and look at the story of Joseph, we can learn something from the story of old Joe. Old Joe, we can learn something. From, okay, I, li I like where this is heading. Where, where, go you, you ahead. You can call him Old Joe. Yeah. Some books called him Papa Joe. Papa, Papa Joe, yeah. Kids called him Joe Pops. <laughs> because when Jesus and Joseph would be walking, kids would holler out and say, Hey, you know that ain't Joe Pops. <laughs> <laughs> See, what book is that in the Old or New Testament? That bottom line is, oh. it don't matter what book it is oh, because oh, yeah. everybody knew that Joseph was Jesus' stepdaddy. Mm. You know that J Joseph was his stepdaddy because everybody know Jesus' mama, Mary. The Virgin Mary. Everybody knows that story about how Mary got pregnant. Oh, they do? I don't know. 
You know Everybody knows that story. One of the great mysteries of the world. You know that story? Okay, first of all, if you read your Bible. Go ahead. If you read your Bible, you would know that the Bible tells you that Mary went off for a weekend girls trip with her cousin, Elizabeth. A girls trip. A weekend girls trip with her cousin, Elizabeth. Wasn't that a movie, Girls Trip, or something like Are that? Are you going to let me talk? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay, everybody, a- okay, everybody knows the story that Mary went on a girls trip with her cousin, Elizabeth. Gotcha. Now, somehow or another, along the way to her cousin, Elizabeth, an angel came to Mary and told Mary, said, now, Mary, you're about to become pregnant. You're about to be with this child, and it's going to be a son. And you're going to name him Jesus. And he's going to save the world. And Mary was like, whatever. Okay. So when she gets to the cousin's house, the cousin said, girl, how was your trip? Because she said, like, oh, it was cool. But you know what? This angel came up to me. And this angel told me that I was getting ready, that I was going to become pregnant. And I was going to have a baby. And talking about I was going to name him Jesus. Okay, now, first of all, I might name him Rico. <laughs> I might name him Cortez, but uh-uh. I'm not naming him no Jesus. What about La Jesus? Whatever. <laughs> I'm just saying, first of all, I ain't having no La Baby or nothing with this body, okay? That's okay? A- you know, and, and it was j- it's just about the time she said that, she felt the kick in her stomach. She's like, oh! And then all of a sudden, she start, she like, oh, because at that moment, she felt like something happened. She felt like, oh, may- maybe I am pregnant. And right then she realized that maybe what this angel said to her was true. And she got scared because now she got to go back and tell Joseph, hey, man, I might be pregnant. Mm. And she don't know how Joe going to take this because Joe ain't never had a taste of the cookie yet. <laughs> I mean, he done smelled it. He done smelled the cooking from the kitchen, <laughs> but he ain't actually tasted the cookie. So she don't know how Joe is going to handle this. So she got to hurry up and get back to the crib before the streets start talking. You know how we do. That is, that's true. You do want to you you beat the streets. before. So the, yeah. She gets to the crib. She runs to Joe. Joe, I need to talk to you. Joe, like, what's up, baby? She said, Joe, look, I'm just going to come straight out with you. I'm pregnant. She tell him the whole story. She's like, Joe, I know you're going to want to leave me. She said, but Joe, I'm telling you what happened. I mean, you know, I respect Joe so much because Joe said, mm. he said, baby, dude, hold on for a minute. He said, I need to step outside for a minute. I need to get my head right. He said, this is a little bit much for me to digest. You, 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 you let me step out for a minute. And man, you probably think that Joe ran outside and smoked a blunt or something. But what Joe did, Joe went outside and talked to God. He said, God, I need some understanding. I need some knowledge. I need to know what's happening here. Some enlightenment. Some enlightenment. And God sent an angel and told Joseph, said, blessed is she, or said, blessed is the fruit that is within her womb. And see, that's all Joseph needed. But see, at that same time, see, Mary's in the house tripping because Mary know Joseph might be getting ready to put her out. And if Joseph puts her out, she got to go find her her own apartment. She ain't got no money to put down on no deposit. She's tripping on what's going to happen. And at, that, and at that time, God sends an angel to Mary. And the angel told Mary, he said, Mary, you good. He said, chill out. 
since you are now in good standings with God. You know, it's kind of like old folks used to say, favor ain't fair, but it sure feel fabulous. Huh? <laughs> and see, just about that time, Joseph walked in the door. Joseph told Mary, he said, Mary, you know what? He said, baby, you ain't going nowhere. He said, you ain't going nowhere because I ain't going nowhere. See, the Bible says that Joseph was the first man that said the words. He said, Mary, I'll be that baby pappy. <laughs> and that's what Joseph did. Joseph took that boy and raised Jesus like he was his own child. Despite what the streets said, everybody knew that wasn't Joe's baby. But you know what? Joe raised that baby. Joe was a carpenter. Joe raised a woman, her baby, and he pulled double weekend shifts at the Home Depot just to make ends meet. And you know what he did? Not only that, he managed to get Jesus into the finest school, got him into the Temple University, home of the fighting wise men at 12 years old. Now, see, now this was the thing. Now, see, Mary was like, ooh, Joe, you can't send that boy to school at 12 years old. He's too young. You know what Joseph told him? Joseph said, Mary, shh, I got this. He said, I have sent him to the temple so that he can sit at the feet of the elders so that he might be able to go and do the work of his father. Mm. He said the work of his father. See, that's the moral of the story, Jason. See, we need to start raising these kids to do the work, not, not to do our work, not to raise us to be proud. We need to raise these kids to do the work of the Lord so that the Lord can be proud. And see, if we do that, we're going to be on to something. Mm. We're going to be heading somewhere. Amen all by myself. Come on, nephew. Woo! Uncle Jimmy, that was a good Bible story. Took some twists and turns, took a few liberties with it, but I like your overall point. Don't matter how you got here, you didn't have to walk. <laughs> Amen all by myself. Come on, man. That's pretty good. All right, let's get to our approval rating of Vice President uh, Kamala Harris. We oh, started the show. 10 hours ago talking about Kamala Harris. I think this may be a record length of our show today, but it was good. Steve Dace, Delano Squires, terrific, and topped by your Bible story, to be quite honest with you. Uh, but anyway, let's get to our approval rating for Kamala Harris. Uh, job performance for the vice president. She's been to the wall, I think, finally, or to, to the border, uh, but I don't think she stayed very long or looked around too much. She bet not had I think she got some Taco Bell. I think you got some Taco Bell and took her ass back back to D.C. Uh, I'm going to give her a six in job performance. Um, I'm going to give her a 20. I'm going to give her a 20. In job performance. In job performance. She's handling her business. She's doing what what, what they need her to do. I think you got some bias because you and Willie Brown go back some time. Man, if you don't. Look, look, look. (laughs) Let let, let me explain something to you. You, you, First of all, you're going to put some spec on Willie's name. (laughs) You know, you're going to put some spec on Big Willie. That's all I'm going to say, man. Come on, man. Character. I I can't go high on character here either, Jimmy. Just, Just. She's a political animal, she'll do anything to rise. Politically, so I'm going to go a character of four. 
Um, I don't know what you're looking at, but for character, I have to give her a 24. A, tw I mean, a 24. Do you realize the different characters that they asked her to play? We want her to be black. We want her to be Indian. <laughs> we want her to be a Sigma, a Kappa. You know? AKA. AKA. Freedom. Freedom. You know, I mean, they, they asked her to do all of this. If anything, they need to call her a, a Chameleon Harris. <laughs> That's what they need to call her. Chameleon Harris. Chameleon Harris, because she changed like she changed like the weather. She reminds me of Olivia Pope from, from Scandal. Did you ever watch Scandal? Uh, who didn't watch Scandal? Yeah, that's who she kind of... She reminds me of Kerry Washington. <clears throat> she ain't that fine, but she's close. I was getting oh, ready to say now. Hold on now. Stop. Come on, man. All right, let's go with authenticity. Uh, I just don't find anything authentic about her. I really don't. I... I, I from the authenticity, whole, I'm going to give her a 20. I'm going to give her a... I'm going to give her a 20. <laughs> I'm giving her a 1. I'm going to give her a 20. You give her a one. Yeah. I give her a 20. Tell me who else right now that you've seen on TV. Ain't nobody else. Dude, that's her hair. She ain't got no weave. <laughs> that's her hair. Kamala Harris. What about is the J-Lo of the political circuit? <laughs> what? Damn, J-Lo. What? <laughs> oh, I guess that make I guess that make Willie Brown P. Diddy, huh? <laughs> That's pretty good. But uh, Jim, she remembers you. I was in college listening to Tupac and Run DMC, everybody. And she was in college before any of them came out. She, 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 she was of that. She was of that group. I think they said that it was called "Fake It Till You Make It," because God know you ain't got no ass to shake it. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> that finally gets us to. That's a good segue to it factor. Which I'm gonna give her high scores for it. In fact, I'm gonna give her a 23. Ski wee! Everybody loves AKAs, man. Uh, first of all, you said earlier, uh, anyway, for her, I'm gonna give her a five. She's part of the KKK. Keep Kamala cool. As <laughs> long as she keep wearing some Chuck Taylors, that's all we need. She gonna be all right, as long as we with the KKK. Timberland. Keep, keep Kamala cool. You see her in the in the Timberland. Man, stop. Yeah, the Tims and all that. I don't think Kamala done ever won a game of Scrabble in her life. <laughs> what about a game of bid, whist, or spades? You think she, I don't think she knows how to play oh, either one. Come on. Oh, I mean, she might know how to play spades. She might, she might know how to play yeah, spades. Yeah, Willie probably taught her that. <laughs> oh, my. Right. I got her an overall score of 34, uh, a dumpster fire. What I got her at? You got her at a 69, a grease fire. Oh, well, hell, that sounds about right. I ain't going to argue with that. I could have had, hey, now, hold on, now, look, I could have had her at a 68, but then she'd had the old one to the house. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. We're done. We're out of here. I'm done. <laughs> See you tomorrow. Discrimination raising up your hands for freedom.